This episode was recorded under less than ideal audio conditions. I wasn't able to find a corner that escaped the sound of neighboring air conditioners, cars, and refrigerators. So if you're hearing it while walking, cooking, or anywhere there's ambient sound around you, you probably won't notice it, but if you're listening with high-fidelity speakers or headphones in total silence, you'll hear a hum that comes in and out. I've tried to edit them out, but it's beyond editing in some places. There's also the occasional stretch where plosives are popping a little more than they should, but hopefully not enough to distract from the content. So, apologies in advance for these telltale features of the still amateur podcaster. I hope you enjoy the sound picture. Is there then a skill in hearing also, as there is in speaking? It seems so. Consider the practice of music. To whom does it belong? To a musician. And the making of a statue. To whom do you think that belongs? To a statuary. And the looking at a statue skillfully. Does this appear to you to require the aid of no art? That too requires art. Then if speaking properly is the business of the skillful, do you see that hearing with benefit is also the business of the skillful? Epictetus Discourses, Book 2, Chapter 24 When I was taking music lessons, I was told, Train your ear. It's your greatest tool in music, without a word more about how to train it. I still hear advice like this with suspicion. I wondered if I have a good ear, like most people, but I wasn't sure what it means. I figured if it means anything, it must mean information about what the ear is hearing, since hearing itself is not known to improve with use. So I'd ask, what's the system or method for studying music for understanding its logic? And I'd get, you need to really listen, or it takes a long time. Okay, first of all, this isn't a strange question. It asks, what are the fundamentals of the subject? And while these answers are true in some way, how do they help me, as Epictetus says, in the art of hearing with greater benefit? The composers have communicated skillfully. How do I listen skillfully? And where do I go to get an answer? I also liked painting as a teenager. My girlfriend and I one summer got a tour of the Vatican. You might recognize this too. The guy was a knowledgeable artist. We were with him for two hours as he prepared us with facts about the Vatican Museum and the Sistine Chapel, which we were going to see. And he spoke very movingly of Michelangelo. He had my attention. He asked us if we knew the difference between a fresco and an oil painting, that there's a short window of time to paint onto the wet surface, that Michelangelo was appointed by the Pope to paint the ceiling, hated it and made the human figures bigger as he went from one end to the other so he can finish sooner. There was a river of people flowing through the chapel, so each visitor had about two minutes inside. We looked up, trying to see the things he talked about, interrupted every 20 seconds by security requesting we move ahead. I wasn't unhappy, but I'm not going to pretend I was more moved than I was. It was a disappointment despite his knowledge, and the reason became clear to me later. He told us everything, except how to look. I worked out that what I needed to know, exactly, was where my attention should be as a novice for the experience to be meaningful, even if for only two minutes. Fact cramming, however enthusiastically, does nothing for the untrained eye to gain insight into a fresco, even with a longer stay. In retrospect, I'd say to him, help me appreciate what Michelangelo's communicating, what his intentions are, and exactly through what elements he's expressed them. 
Forget what he did while painting, or if he liked it. Is there a tension between the object and the light source I should focus on? Is it color? Line? Are these even the right questions? What should I be asking? What can't I appreciate without being in the Sistine Chapel? Or is two hours of the most committed attention on site not enough to make a beginning? I know tourism is an industry and not an educational institution, but you know what I mean. And he wasn't a tour guide, he was an artist. I felt like an illiterate but not stupid person gazing on a beautifully bound book. I see it has value, but I can't read the story, let alone see why it's a good one. And I'm in a library of such books. What I need isn't the life story of one author or facts about this book, but the principles of literacy so with time I can come into the library and read what I like. Of course, any genuine art, even if bluntly and too rapidly absorbed, will leave an effect, and you can feel instantly when you walk in that that ceiling is something of uncommon genius. I was still grateful to see it. In the same way, everyone at a classical concert took music lessons at some point, but many of our minds wander. You get to your seat, walking up those concert hall aisles and stairs that always feel like they weren't designed for human legs. The lights dim and the symphony begins along with your internal monologue. Wow, look at the whole orchestra. The sound is so nice. It's so cool how the violin bows go up and down together. I wonder how many hours they practice for each concert. Let me see how many of the players look over 60. The third one from the right looks like my friend's dad. How many old people are there in the audience? Where do I put this program? I'm tired of holding it. I hope I can take a picture without the usher seeing me. Oh, it's so cool when they all play loud and the floor shakes. It's the same behavior, and it's in a kind of cathedral of sound. There's as much of an essay being argued in that sound, in its rhythms, instrumentation, melody, as there is in the stone language of a church facade or arch or glass window or statue, if only the listener knows where to focus. When you go to a classical concert, what do you focus on when the music begins? There's a lot you can notice that might excite or move you without deepening engagement over time. People admire technical skill. It's what's distilled in the memory from childhood lessons. That's why the hours of practice come to mind. But that has a short half-life, and when it ends, people turn to historical facts in the manner of my tour guide. Wondering how people could write such beautiful music. Eventually what people come around to experience are moods at various intensities, because it's all that's left. Sometimes for relaxation. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, because the mood might be the composer's intention. Chronically stressed and distracted as we are, music's closest function is a sedative or some therapeutic agent for a lot of people. It's not a bad thing anyway, if music serves as a haven and a landing shore for the wretched refuse of the business day. In the end, listening or looking skillfully means having an aesthetic education. The thing that effectively says, look or listen like this and you'll see something amazing. The cost of being without it is that the focus goes to the surface of the event rather than sinking into engagement with it. That's not a trivial loss. It's not just isolation in the present from art. It means the isolation of the present from the past. And here's the first pinch point. The past and its art feels irrelevant. But it's not about the past. 
Some things might have been obvious to the 16th century Sistine Chapel visitor or concert goer. We have to make it our business to translate that experience into ones in the present. If today the Sistine Chapel has little to say to a visitor, the fault is not Michelangelo's. And the same thing with a Mozart symphony. Unless we're going to raise down all the churches, empty the museums, disband all orchestras, which we're never going to do, we might as well arrive mentally as well and remain alive to them because we're going to be spending our time and money on them anyway. And there are still going to be children who want to create them, study them, and enjoy them. But this work is rarely done. To begin with, classical music differs from other kinds in two important ways. Above all, by length. It's long-form music. It's like a story or a play, and unfortunately, that means its experience is a bit more delicate and prone to distraction. It's also an analog phenomenon. It has to be appreciated live, otherwise much of its character is lost. Combine these, and there's a demand of sitting, which means that the place where the body interacts with the music is a huge concern. This point, the physicality of music, will become significant in multiple ways, as we'll see. I often find I'm too aware of the room if the music doesn't fit, like a piano piece that was intended to be heard at a maximum length of a living room and we're in a Carnegie Hall-sized auditorium with reverb. Might seem like a small thing, but if a person told you a story you normally tell around a couch, from that distance without a microphone, would you tolerate this? Classical music suffers more from being shoved into the wrong venue than other music. And a lot of uneventful concerts are not bad, they're just in the wrong place. Stendhal wrote a hilarious biography of Rossini, and in it he says that the same music, quote, may inspire the most disproportionate havoc of enjoyment one night, and three nights later occasion nothing more than an infinite weariness and boredom. The causes of this revolution may be insignificant overheating in the auditorium, or a neighbor leaning back luxuriantly in his own seat and communicating a series of steady, maddeningly regular jerks to your own, indeed the enjoyment of music is in so large a measure purely physical that, as the reader will have observed, it may depend on the presence or absence of phenomena which in description seem unbelievably trivial. As often as not, an evening which promises exquisite delights and the added luxury of a comfortable box may be completely ruined by the hateful intrusion of just some such ignoble triviality. One might ransack one's brain for hours on end, exploring the most delicate intricacies of metaphysics to explain why Elisabetta, an opera by Rossini, was suddenly so unpalatable, whereas the real reason is simply that the auditorium was too hot, and whenever such an obstruction arises, one stops listening naturally. One feels it one's duty not to miss a single note. What a phrase! To feel it one's duty! How anti-musical! It is as though one were to feel it one's duty to be thirsty. End quote. Music enters the ears, but it's definitely understood with the body. You swing to it, your chest gets that cosmic feeling. You breathe with the music's phrases in ways you're not aware of, or tear up. The ear is the messenger, the body registers the meaning. This is how you know you've experienced music as opposed to the event. The question isn't just, do you have a good ear for music, but does the body like what the ear receives? The properties of music have a physical correlate, they cause something like motion in the body, just like a story does. So it can be interfered with physically. Stendhal quotes a Neapolitan doctor of the day, Domenico Cotugno, prescribing a solution. 
I don't know if this is a real quote, because the voice and the argument sound suspiciously like Stendhal. I looked him up to see if he was a real person. He was, and he was important in the history of Italian medicine. The doctor's recommendation is, quote, To obtain perfect pleasure, it is essential to be situated in a kind of isolated field, as we observe in certain experiments involving electrical magnetism, which in practice means that it is necessary that the space of at least one foot should intervene between oneself and the nearest adjacent body. The animal heat which emanates from a foreign body appears to me to have a most pernicious effect on the enjoyment of music. End quote. Uh... I don't miss the lack of air conditioning 200 years ago, plus the heat of candles and lamps, but they had no records and no iTunes, so music was heard only in its appropriate place because they couldn't hear it otherwise. Today, other distractions like cell phones and unfinished business play the role of animal heat. What familiarity one has with aesthetics on top of everything else might be useful in seeing that the concert experience doesn't get too fragile. But Stondahl's observation is an astute one. An unnoticed distraction rebounds on the music's value. It's a strange thing that composers wrote in an isolated field, literally in the countryside or some other private haunt, yet we go to concert halls to hear the results after our heads are spinning with maybe two hours of bustle or city traffic noises. And while I'm at it, let me flag a final obstacle you've probably experienced already. Implied in Stendhal's comment is also the question, what would a genuinely musical ritual be? If it's just that the air has music in it, well, every restaurant and department store has that too. Where is the time and place where we regularly focus on sound against silence, as a pursuit worth it for its own sake simply because it's one of our senses, and do it socially? When you were last at a recital, was it to see a family member play? If so, was it a musical event for you, or a family event? A lot of social events look like musical ones, not that there's anything wrong with that either. But there's a world of difference between the two. And if you pay attention, there are whole concerts, even whole periods of concert going, that don't bear the slightest resemblance to an actual musical ritual. It's good to be aware of why you've gone. Coming to music itself, I dream of a music school on the model of the academies of ancient philosophy, where instead of giving answers, the reverberating questions would be implanted that illuminate the path the student's mind has stumbled upon. The first goal of instruction in this academy would be to free the student at the earliest possible moment from the need of instruction where all technical skills were developed as the various manifestations of the real discipline of beauty and its elements. The fears and anxieties of failure wouldn't harass the student in such a context because these difficulties would be the first things welcomed to be overcome and serve as cues to the questions the philosophy taught, and boredom and pain, the cues that they've been momentarily forgotten, to be calmly resumed. The Academy wouldn't distinguish listener from performer, since performers would be as much listeners as everyone else. Like when a person reads to a well-read group of people, the thoughts of the author are the focus even by the reader. Everything would be seen in its proportion to the higher aim and wisdom of making a mind more and more receptive to beauty. Armed with the confidence of thorough understanding of composition and performance that this musical philosophy would give, without either aggrandizing music or reducing it to a passion, its graduates would welcome new freshmen into it with the fluency of a native tongue. 
But down here on Earth, where things are not as practical, the situation with music instruction is interesting and worth taking a few minutes to understand through a scientific lens. When Mozart was born, the laws of classical mechanics, as discovered by Isaac Newton, were over a century old. But chemistry was comparatively still in its ancient form. By the end of Mozart's short life, some of the most important chemical experiments in history had been conducted. Joseph Priestley discovered oxygen in 1774 when Mozart was a teenager, but he called it deflogisticated air because of a mystery, a confusion actually at the time in chemistry, about what happens when a substance burns. It was believed for over a hundred years that things burn because they have an invisible part called phlogiston, a fire-based substance which separates on burning, leaving the pure, visible substance behind. Priestley noticed that a mouse in a glass flask lived longer breathing this new air from which he imagined he had separated the phlogiston than if he let the mouse breathe regular air. A few years earlier, Henry Cavendish had discovered hydrogen, but he called that inflammable air. By experiment, it could be shown that water is a compound of these two substances, whatever they were, and hence water can't be an element. But the hero of the story is the French chemist Antoine Lavoisier. In 1777, Lavoisier renamed the obscure deflogisticated air, or vital air, oxygen, because it was thought this ingredient made acids, wrongly as it turned out. Lavoisier logically renamed it the generator of acidity, oxygen. He reproduced experiment after experiment going over the work of Priestley and Cavendish and many others. Noticing inflammable air produces water when burned, he renamed it the generator of water, hydrogen. This gas seemed to behave just like phlogiston. As Lavoisier arrived at a new theory of combustion, the mysterious phlogiston hypothesis came to an end. In 1789, around the time Mozart was at work on his opera Così fan tutte, Lavoisier birthed a systematic chemical nomenclature for the elements known at the time, defining an element as something that can't be broken down to simpler substances. It defined, at the level then available to experiment, what's fundamental and what's not, and what's an error in classification. There would be more advances later, but confusions about phlogiston were over. The proof that water is a compound was a huge coup because it discredited the belief held for more than 2,000 years that the material basis of all substances was earth, fire, water, and air, and replaced it with a table of elements. I don't know if Mozart knew this, and he knew some scientists. He certainly knew Anton Mesmer personally, and in Così fan tutte, there is that scene where the sham doctor uses magnets to mesmerically revive the pretend fainting of the two men, and Mozart lived only another three years after Lavoisier's chemical nomenclature. But whether he did or not, in his last opera, The Magic Flute, the two armed men are still singing of earth, fire, water, and air, as the purifying elements that once penetrated will give insight into the Isis mysteries. It had been many years that water was known to be a compound and air had been classified as several different elements. Water and air were now a lot less mysterious. This makes The Magic Flute the first opera, or at least the first great one, to make a historical reference to the classical elements. 
By the time of Mozart's death, a system for modern chemistry had been born. Lavoisier himself didn't long survive Mozart. In return for his contribution to humanity, he was guillotined during the Reign of Terror. But the revolution in chemistry he oversaw was still being expanded and added to over a hundred years later, when William Ramsey discovered helium in 1895, though now in the much updated form of the periodic table by Mendeleev. So that now, ask any biologist, physicist, or chemist today to explain the periodic table or the process of combustion, like the laws of classical mechanics known before, there will be unanimity of opinion not just among them, but also from one place in the world to another. If separate physicists had to teach a novice up through the field step by step, they'd still be proceeding in agreement when she's reached relativity. Now, stop a conductor, a singer-songwriter, an orchestral player, an opera singer, a pianist, and a music teacher, and ask them what the fundamentals of music are, and what are the processes by which they combine, and how they apply to one kind of music and to another, so that one can listen with equal understanding to Mozart's bassoon concerto, which was written while oxygen was being discovered, or to Così fan tutte when the chemical nomenclature was put together, or to Puccini's La Boheme, which was written when helium was being discovered. Not only is it unlikely that a clear system you can take away with you will come from each answer, but nothing close to a common understanding will emerge between them all. It's an astonishing thing. There's no agreed-upon system of thought in music, no field-wide concept of music's logic and process, or even agreement about what's fundamental. If I get a scientific concept wrong, and I hope I got most of what I just said right, it's my fault for not applying myself enough. The science itself is clear, and so is its instruction. But if a musician is confused about music theory, or composition, or how to aid the lay listener, it's not their fault. Of course, they share a basic training in music theory, say, and if they're professional, they'll have probably gone through at least one degree of four or five years' length. But each teacher and institution teaches a different system. There'll be chord analysis in one, Schenkerian analysis in another. Heinrich Schenker was a music theorist. You, you don't want to know or some other not-actionable academic hallucination. And if you press further, fatigued by the question, they might say it depends on what music you're looking at. When modern science was just being born, in whichever of its branches, music had already reached a prodigiously systematic understanding. It shows how old an art classical music is. The chemists were guessing with phlogiston. Um, the musicians were not guessing. With or without talent, every practitioner of it played several instruments and was fluent in all its forms and genres, whether mass, motet, madrigal, minuet, fugue, sonata, concerto, symphony, opera, and it continued to be that way until the beginning of the 19th century, when composers began to specialize. Chopin's a good example of a specialist. He wrote only for piano, or almost entirely for piano. There are no Chopin operas or symphonies. Today, there's no sorrier creature than a conservatory student eager to write something that her neighbors down the street would like to hear. I don't know of another field that for so many hundreds of years had such extraordinary competence, boasted such a list of geniuses throughout, and yet has as much woolly, obscure, contradictory, and misleading instruction as music. Let me clarify 
the nature of this transmission problem. Musicians can look at a sheet of music and there'll be no mysteries for them about how to play it. This is one relationship to music, a very important one because it allows musicians to do their job. But the two skills involved, literacy and note reading, and the physical execution on an instrument or voice that musicians toil with devotion to acquire, are more technical skills than musical ones. Instruction in them is fantastic, and professional musicians are astoundingly good at both. But this doesn't concern the listener. There's another, strictly musical relationship engaged with that sheet of music by asking, how is this sound organized to make its effect, and by what logic is this organization made? An answer to this is not essential to performance, but it is relevant to the audience and essential to the composer. It's here the principles of listening are found. It's another way of asking, what do I listen to? This education is inadequate almost everywhere and not systematic. I'm overgeneralizing a bit, but a professional's technical skill might be at a transcendent level, but grasp of the composer's choices remains only slightly above the cultivated lay audience. The performer who puts aside the language of their trade will find it hard to explain without reference to their instruments. Or at least, there won't be anything like unanimity of opinion. It's a bit like being able to pronounce a language better than speaking it. Much of music is lost on the audience because it doesn't know what problem the composer is trying to solve. Music theorists and musicologists think they have an answer, but their rubber never meets a road, other than university tenure. The systematic understanding and instruction in the language of music awaits its lavoisier, because it's moved back into its phlogiston age. And while there's still no system showing a budding singer-songwriter how to confidently study Chopin and a song by Adele, find what's useful for her purpose and what's not, and judge what Adele and Chopin each achieved in their own way. There are scholarly books and journals discussing music theory and race, music theory and gender, penises and testicles in Beethoven symphonies. I wish I was joking. The most reasonable advice I ever heard was people look for a single method that gives them all the answers. Why limit yourself this way? Each method has something. Take what you find useful from each one. How wise that sounds. But doesn't it condemn every student to reinvent the wheel, putting the burden on them to reconstruct musical pedagogy before learning it? Isn't this an admission there's no system? And how long do you suppose it might take to do this? By the time they sift through the morass of methods, they'll have switched to becoming nutritionists or moved into computer science or somewhere their efforts are rewarded. And Lord only knows what the audience is supposed to do with that advice. Bring it to physics. Don't limit yourself to looking for laws of gravity. Hear as many opinions about matter and motion as you can and come to your own understanding. Sure, if it's 1512 and Michelangelo just finished the Sistine Chapel and Galileo and Newton are yet to be born, this would be wise advice. Only a half-wit would stick around to try solving this problem and podcast about it. Why, that would be me. I may be standing on a plank of my own pillory, but unless we're going to believe that music is so complex that decades of professorial exertion leave its world as mysterious as before, a mystery has been made where there is none. Or was none.
and the relevant questions are not being asked. There are only two worth answering and analyzing music for, which maintain the clarity of experiment. How do I play better? And how do I write better? And both of those questions are subdivisions of one question, the one asked by Epictetus. How do I hear with greater benefit? At the risk of blaspheming, probably too late, how much brains do you think this requires? I'll bet my life you need a more agile mind to follow relativity mathematically, and how many half-wits do you know who can explain that? Music will welcome a Newton-level IQ? His name was Wolfgang Mozart, by the way. But it doesn't need one. Fundamentals can't be complex by definition. After years of struggling, not with music, but with the many dead ends of instruction, I threw out everything I was taught and began again with the fool's curiosity I had as a teenager and applied to music a simple, common-sense inquiry. And as I did this, I was as surprised as I shouldn't have been that music yielded its fundamentals in, oh, about an hour altogether, spread over three days. Soon the confusions that had persisted for years fell away, and the reasons for all the observations that seemed correct fell into place. Their logic was all suddenly intelligible, as it will be with everything when reason is applied to it long enough. From what I could see, there were only eight, with a possible ninth. All those symphonies, concertos, operas, ballets, sonatas, chamber music, and all non-classical music is reducible to eight fundamentals, and you engage them every time you sing to yourself. They could be taught before lunch on the first day of any degree. You might think of them as a kind of periodic table of musical elements, out of which all its matter is made. And in a minute we'll go through them one by one with some music. I don't fully agree with my own analogy here, but it's good enough to start with. To orient your ear to them, try something now. Bring to mind a song that you like that you can hum. Notice that you can do this without any musical education, and that you can hum it to someone else and they can learn this song from you also without it. Now examine your song with this set of questions. Feel free to stop the podcast to think about it. Tap out the rhythm of the song. What's its rhythm separate from pitch? From its highest to its lowest note, does it have a narrow range or a wide one? Whether it has lyrics or not, what is the contour of this song? Follow where its notes go up and down or stay on the same pitch. What effect does this direction have? Does it feel like it falls or lifts from place to place? Do you hear in your mind an instrument or voice producing this song, or both? Does the song have an accompaniment, or is it just one note at a time, a cappella? Do the notes flow together without break, or are some detached? How loud is the song? Are some parts louder than others, or is the whole song at the same volume? And can you imagine anyone doing a cover of this song, or playing it on an instrument while singing it? Notice if you actually felt these things as you were thinking about them. There might be something physical, as if something real is in these details. If you imagine the sound of a beach ball hitting sand and the sound of the wind picking up on the same beach, with the difference in articulation, there's also a physical sensation in the memory as well. Awareness of this makes a difference in the concert hall. 
In fact, for this reason, the analogy used since all of time for understanding music is mimicry. Music has been thought to be closer to body language, in both the visual way as well as in the internal movement. And to hear this, there isn't a better place to start than with an opera. Speak to a street mime, and she'll hear you, and understand like others who speak your language. But a single glance from her, and everyone understands. The mime speaks our animal language. By the way, if you love mimes, there's a French film called Les Enfants du Paradis, the children of paradise, that you shouldn't go without seeing. It's great. Music speaks in the same way. Sound is only one sense, but it suggests the other four senses. In opera, if someone reads a distressing letter, the music picks up speed and agitation, like the mime's face. If someone struggles to stay awake, a monotonous, wavy melody simulates heavy eyelids and unsteady vision. And this serves a technical problem in opera. The actor Oliver Reed, that's the guy who played Proximo in Gladiator, once said that playing a villain, it's very important not to blink. You don't ever see a cobra blink, do you, he said. And that the movie screen is so wide that a close-up means your eyelids are six feet across. You look more like Bambi if you blink. Well, in opera, the problem is exactly the opposite. The stage is so far away that subtle facial expressions and tone of voice that guide emotions in conversation are lost. So it's the job of the composer to provide them with music. And this makes the music the real narrator of the drama. Now, in an opera house, you'd have a visual too. But this is a podcast, and you don't have one now in any case. We can use this limitation. Then raise the curtain in your mind to reveal a provocatively clad woman in a Parisian cafe with the friendly attention of more than one man on her. Quella gente che dirà the second female character in Puccini's La Boheme. If it's a 19th century opera, look to the body language. 
She's trying to make her ex-boyfriend Marcello jealous by visibly drawing the attention of other men. The first element in her music that mimics this act is the speed of it. It's rhythm, the most fundamental element. It's a subtle thing to do effectively in music. What's the speed of a seduction? At what pace is it felt internally? Because what's considered sexually provocative outwardly changes not just by situation, but also by what each culture and age considers taboo. And this opera was premiered in 1896 in Turin. To give it perspective, Freud's studies on hysteria was still on the new releases shelf in the bookstores. This is a different world from the one we know, but internally we all feel the same from one age to the next. After three tantalizing harp notes, her melody begins slowly, measuredly, just like a tease would, one note at a time. It's almost not moving. There's just enough change to suggest motion, to pique interest in something musically sweeter to come. This is actually the first law of good operatic grammar. The speed of the music or melody has to match the tempo of the thoughts during the drama. If the tempo of the thoughts changes, so should the tempo of the music. Of course, it's not as strict as that, but it's true in every meaningful way. An opera with even beautiful music at the wrong speed is like an apology made with a wrong tone of voice. If you find yourself bored for some mysterious reason in the middle of what seems like pleasant musical theater, here's a tip. Check the speed of the music against the words and situation. It's likely where the fault is. And this sounds obvious, but if it was in practice, one has to wonder why, in opera's 400-year history, only a handful of composers had an unfailing sense for it. You might think speed and rhythm are different elements. Rhythm is a pattern of sounds, and speed is how fast or slow that pattern of sounds is sung or played. But it's important to remember that this is not how things are when the music is being experienced. While listening, speed is only an effect of rhythm. Philosophers argue over these questions. We're not going to do that, but a good practical way to think about it is like this. If I played you a single, constantly sounding note, like a dial tone, with no pattern of change against it, how would you know whether you're hearing fast music with a very long note in it, or a shorter note in very slow music? You can imagine the same idea visually. If you stare out of the window of a train at the parallel tracks beside it while it's moving, you wouldn't know from the tracks whether you're moving fast, slow, or not moving at all, as long as the tracks remained parallel to themselves and to your train. The moment they diverge, though, the moment you introduce a change, you sense your speed. A note played very slowly sounds exactly the same as a long note played fast. Both sound like a stationary tone as if they have no speed. In the absence of a pattern of change, to measure speed, you'd be forced to find some regularity outside the music, like a watch. It's important to remember that the metronome, which does exactly this, was invented only around 200 years ago. What did composers do before that? Just what the writer does. When you say that a book is a fast read, you mean the way its thoughts and sentences are written. The tempo of a book is determined by its author, 
however fast or slow a reader you are. The composer decides the music's tempo in the same way by writing everything into a rhythm. We forget this because you can sing the Star Spangled Banner a little faster or slower and think that you changed its speed. We forget that a person listening only understands it as a speed after hearing the first few rhythms. This is what makes rhythm, in any practical sense, fundamental. It's the element that determines motion, and for that reason it's the element that all the others are measured by. Okay, but the first thing you actually hear is her voice, and the first thing you notice with any voice is its register, which is also the musical term. Musetta's starts in the high register and descends. Imagine how different this melody would sound if she began at the bottom of her range. It would probably sound a lot more intimate, since she wouldn't be able to sing it very loudly that low in her voice, but that could also be seductive. But let's remember, Musetta is putting herself on display. She intends everyone in the cafe to see this. Like with speaking register, a certain amount of a character's personality is determined by what register the music requires him or her to sing, bark, or whisper in. Again, this seems obvious until you look a little deeper. By starting at the top of the melody, it puts Musetta above our mental eye level, or puts us beneath hers as if she was flipping her hair or tilting her head back. Whether this was a formula for seduction scenes in the latter half of the 19th century might be committing me too much, but an interesting comparison is the habanera from Bizet's Carmen. Another seductive posture, equally visible for all to see, built on the same concept. It begins from an upper register and descends in a slow lilt. It's a reasonably safe assumption that part of the erotic character of both tunes derives from this feature. In contrast, a much more intimate melody is sung in La Boheme in the Act One tenor aria, and there the register concept reverses. Rodolfo is face-to-face -face in the dark with his surprise date, so now the melody begins in the low voice and rises as he introduces himself to her and to us. <sighs> Mm -hmm. 
interesting that because this melody which builds from the low register remains in the mind, Rodolfo's real personality seems to come through when he sings in this register of his voice, and it tells us that he's the poet member of the Bohemians. Musetta flies up and down her range extrovertly. But then, an event transforms her character in the fourth act. In the final hour of her friend's life, she leads her back home giving the dire news tensely and quickly to her friends in order to carry out her last request, to die near the love of her life. All of this she now delivers in the mid-low register of her voice. The importance of the news, told in such a contrast in the pitch of her voice to her previous appearances, makes the situation devastatingly palpable. The one time it rises is when she's quoting her friend's words, I'm dying, I feel it. I want to die near him, which she can't recall or say without horror. It makes us believe and love her as a serious person, so that when her boyfriend Marcello says to her, Sei buona mia musetta, which translates as something a little deeper than just your decent musetta, he's only confirming what we already feel about her. Incidentally, notice also the difference in the pace and rhythm, the breathless panic of news too horrible to bear. These begin not to look like accidents and more like details the great composers live in. The term law is a clumsy word for it, but it gets the point across. The law this element demands of the composer, if it's more complicated than just painting a character's personality, is the register of the melody generally matches the emotional state of the character at each moment, just as the tone of voice does in real life. Back to Act 2. It's a short step from high and low register to the outline, the shape the notes make between them. What do you see in your mind's eye when you hear this? If you see a curved shape, you're responding to an element more often noticed by people not trained in music, the element called direction. If register tells what general mood a character has or their speaking register, direction is the musical version of rising and falling speech patterns, or what line is to painting, or even more appropriate for us, a camera panning up or down in a film. One of the oldest arts in music is matching the melodic contour to the imagery of the words. 
When singing of mountains, notes rise. When singing of valleys, they drop. Just think of the first few notes of Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. This pair of curves in the melody does a lot of work. And in case this isn't clear, Puccini directs the singer to underline it by taking her time on it. For the relevance of emphasizing curves, use your imagination. If you're aware of the direction of notes, a seemingly inconsequential detail will suddenly spring out at you with meaning. What's this? The violins have been shadowing her in unison from the start. This little solo leads in her second phrase. Musically, it's a lead-in. Dramatically, in its velvety upward sweep, you can almost see the smoke rising in the cafe. Or maybe it's her skirt lifting, or her hand knowingly running up her leg and revealing some of it. Or is it her hair? Any of these can be imagined without seeing it on stage. What if this line went downward, or zigzagged? Well, maybe for a boat tied to a dock, or trees swaying in the wind. Direction adds its own law to music and to opera. The shape suggested by the direction of the notes generally matches some part of the imagery of the thought or action performed on stage. Exceptions are numerous and with good composers always interesting. A sensitive performance of this role by a singer would be one that's simply aware of the subtlety of these effects and doesn't exaggerate them or do anything that clashes with them in singing or acting. The music does everything else. Direction and register together make opera's most exciting moment, the high note. In this case, Musetta sings it to the words, They stop to look at my beauty from my head to my foot, followed appropriately by an octave and a half drop in register. As you see, music obeys Newtonian gravity, too. If a melody descends, it lends itself better to expressing images that appear not to resist gravity, like waterfalls, dying, melancholy, sleepiness, or submission. Rising melodies naturally tend to have energy. Just think of the phrase, and the rocket's red glare, in the Star-Spangled Banner, or the final climb of, for the land of the free and the home of the brave. I love that one because from the ground a rocket actually looks like, a, like it slows down the higher it goes, and the notes do exactly that. Stable emotions or conditions like obsessiveness, fear, tension, placidity, or steady burning fire have all been memorably written to melodies that don't move either up or down. But listen to it again. Is it all direction that makes this effect? I'm guessing you've thought of one of two things, maybe a third, all of which are correct. 
One might be the connectedness of the notes. They could have been in the same direction, but detached. If so, your mind went to its articulation. We'll come back to this one in a few minutes. Hold that thought. Or you thought of the smoothness of the violin's sound. How might a composer convey the feel of the fabric of her dress, or the sensation of it on her hand, or the sensation of her hair? I'm not saying this is what Puccini's trying to do, but the way he's written it makes this interpretation possible, in a way that it wouldn't be if the line were played by trumpets or double basses. The feel of something, the tactile sensations, if they're depicted at all in music, are done by the nearest instruments that sound something like them. In that case, your mind went to the timbre, or sound. The sound quality adds more than just the feel of the sound. It adds all the connotations and secondary meanings and the description of the setting, like scene descriptions in novels. If the orchestration is very fine, substituting another instrument usually diminishes or destroys the effect. If you've ever asked yourself, how does the composer know which instrument plays what? I'll let Puccini himself answer, since it's pretty much the law of sound when it comes to opera. Quote, One needs to look at the stage with a good ear. End quote. It has to sound like what you see. You decide if he's succeeding. Whole podcasts wouldn't exhaust this subject, but in another sense, no podcast could ever begin it either. The sound quality is something you can only appreciate live. Trying to understand the effect of orchestral sounds on a podcast is a little like trying to feel what swimming feels like on a podcast. Buy a ticket. The violins are definitely the singing heart of the orchestra. Emotional intensity and heat of all kinds are depicted particularly well by having them soaring together as one body in the high register. What began almost unnoticeably behind Musetta's song now brightens out. The climax, culminating loudly and breathlessly, is to the words, It pleases me, leaving no doubt what she intends everyone to think, but it can also be the echo of the irritation it's causing Marcello, who's trying to show he doesn't care but he's getting jealous, as well as the fun his friends are having watching all this. The audience is probably aware of one of these interpretations, or just basking in the beauty of the orchestral sound. This is what violins were made for, adding lyricism to a melody by playing it in a higher octave. repeats from the beginning. Other characters begin to speak, which means several melodies are combined, either harmonizing with or as a counterpoint to Musetta's. In other words, solo turns into duet, then trio, quartet, until everyone joins in. I don't think the term sugar daddy was in circulation yet in 1896, but at first we get the reactions of Alcindoro, who's exactly that, 
brought there by Musetta. Mimi, seated at Marcello's table, says she's obviously still in love with him, which is just perfect, because of when it happens. She sings this in duet with Musetta. This introduces the very interesting element of texture, which in musical terms is something like how many pitches are sounding at once. It's more complicated than that, but the details don't matter for now. I have to talk about theater for a minute, which is not music. We're using opera because it has words, but opera is actually a combination of three arts rolled into one, music, poetry, and drama, or theater. If you take a stage play, add metered poetry and music, you get opera. We're concerned at the moment with the one-third that's music, but at this point the theatrical third interacts meaningfully with one of the musical elements. If you're a seasoned opera-goer, you'll have heard or read that one composer has a better theatrical sense than another. And this is said to mean that the characters are lifelike, and the plot and situations true to life and relatable. This is a sensitive aspect of opera and easily misunderstood, and texture has a lot to say about it. Here's a real-life situation I'd bet everyone's had. You have a conversation with a friend at a cafe or some public place. Your focus is on the conversation, so you don't pay attention to the cash register, cars, dishes, what other people are saying, walking past you. Then you hear this conversation recorded and suddenly notice all the ambient noises you missed. You know how selective you are when you notice the recording doesn't discriminate relevant from irrelevant noises, like you do. If the audio document didn't exist, you'd never remember them again. As far as your memory is concerned, those sounds didn't happen. What I wonder is, to what extent did anybody notice this before recording? Anyway, for some reason, second-rate opera composers actually write more like the audio recorder. They write, in one sense, in a more realistic way, not less. If we come back to Musetta's tune, you can see this difference. The scene would be difficult to follow if all the conversations of the friends, the accompanying melodies, were going on the first time we heard this melody. But in a real cafe situation, people would talk throughout and the normal cafe sounds would continue. It might still be beautiful musically, but the realism gained from it would destroy the theatrical effect. Musetta wouldn't capture the attention. And this is a question of texture. Good operas don't follow disinterestedly, like a recording device with every irrelevant sound in it as well. This is perhaps a golden rule of operatic grammar. The texture in an opera ideally censors out the irrelevant detail just like the attention does in real life. There's another way texture is so important. One of the advantages always recognized in opera over spoken drama is that everyone can be singing at once, 
maybe even adding meaning for the loss of verbal clarity. This point makes a nice moment in the movie Amadeus, in a slightly corny way, because Mozart would never have to explain this to Joseph II. But what's not so obvious is the disadvantage this has. The texture of a play, in the musical sense, is always the same. Only one person speaks at a time. But in opera, it means the composer is exposed and tempted into an error the playwright is immune from. Many operas are theatrically dead on arrival because the composer did this at the wrong time. Music can ruin everything. It's interesting that this is and isn't a musical issue. Yes, it's a musical issue because texture is an element. But it's not a musical issue because the reasons the music's texture changes are not always musical. When the movie Moulin Rouge came out, a lot of people said they got the story the second time because the first time they were too distracted by the flippery and frippery of the amount of visual detail in the film. The film's texture got in the way. A similar phenomenon exists in opera. If we're going to love or hate a character, we need some moment to share their emotional world. Whenever that moment is, we can't have something competing for our attention just then. It doesn't have to be more than a few seconds. It can be just a chord, a musical glance, to return to our mime analogy. Judging by the literature of the most popular operas, the best chance to do this is their first entrance or shortly after. Miss it and it tends to weaken the character and maybe the opera as a whole. But once that solo moment has happened, they can sing merrily with everyone else. The whole of Act 2 of La Boheme is booby-trapped for the texture error. Puccini just pirouettes over all of them. It's a kind of textural jujitsu. To appreciate this, I want to compare it to an opera by another great composer who I think lost sight of the texture in this way. I love Tchaikovsky as much as the next person, but one alarming case is his opera Eugene Onegin. Like La Boheme, Eugene Onegin has two pairs of lovers as main characters. Tchaikovsky's two women, Olga and Tatiana, are singing offstage right as the curtain goes up. They're heard from within a house singing a duet like this.
What can you possibly find wrong with something as gorgeous as that? Well, nothing here. It's saved by the story and by where it is. This is offstage. In operatic logic, that doesn't really count as an entrance. It's hard to become intimate with only a voice. We have to see them. And as they're singing a song in the story, not just because it's opera, the music one of them sings sounds like what the other one is singing. Not long after they're on stage, the two men enter, Lenski and Onegin. This is a complex moment theatrically. It's not only their entrance. It's the moment when one couple who will be lovers first set eyes on each other. It's an emotionally important moment. There are four of them now. What's each one thinking? Well, Olga is already the fiancé of Lenski and worried about the conjectures and judgments of the neighbors. Tatiana falls in love with Onegin on sight. Onegin, who's been brought there by Lenski, this is a blind date of sorts, is asking somewhat maliciously which of the two sisters is Tatiana, hoping it's not Olga and wondering how Lenski could have fallen for the less attractive one. And Lenski is saying, well, how different their tastes are. Tchaikovsky has them sing this simultaneously as a quartet, like many an opera before and after. The question is, how are we going to hear all this in this or any quartet, since they're all going to be singing at once? Answer, remember the mime. The music has to tell us how they feel, and who feels what, by mimicking their different emotions at different speeds. Each character is in an emotional and mental place of their own, and whatever is happening in the story, this is still our introduction to them. Here's how Tchaikovsky interprets it. I don't know what you think about that. Beautiful though it is, to me there's something wrong here. I have no idea who to listen to first and feel robbed of the chance to meet them, musically speaking. There are definitely four people, but who is one, who's another, 
Is their individuality preserved or differentiated? Tatiana is singing the long notes because she's in love. But the orchestra is curiously non-committal about her and only marks time. And the other three are musically indistinguishable from each other. On headphones, as a purely musical experience, the wrong texture may be harmless. But the effect in the opera house? Even now, I think you can hear the difference. In the theater, this error, if I may call it that, makes the opera dramatically flat. The musical body language is missing. It doesn't set something in motion, something somatic, when the music begins to tell us Tatiana's in love. Without the music's help, we have four people speaking at us at once, and lucky the person who can follow it. You'll still be waiting for the musical, quote, moment, since you can't understand what's being said. It's perfectly true to life. The situation is exactly as it would be in real life. Four people are meeting in a socially awkward moment. As an operatic experience, it's like being introduced to four people, listening to their stories all at once and switching to someone else halfway in each sentence. And neither of their stories is interesting. I'd imagine a playwright would have to go out of her way to make this error. And in a novel, this is no problem. The narrator can take it out of the real time of dialogue at any point. It helps if each character is given a different melody of their own at a different rhythm, melodic shape, and register. Just what we've looked at already. In La Boheme, this is exactly what happens. Each character has a separately timed and paced entrance, and only then made to sing together. It's worth hearing Musetta's waltz sequence from the beginning to notice that nobody sings while she does until she's sung her two defining paragraphs or gets to a cadence. Once we're familiar with her tune, under its reprise comes the chatter of her friends, and we can effortlessly follow two melodies at once. In doing this, Puccini has effectively given us a seat at the cafe table and filled us in like friends who just arrived. Quella gente che dirà Oh, <laughs> 
you can hear in that that Musetta's melody is the slow-moving skeleton on which faster parts hang. In fact, we can refine the texture principle like this. When two or more characters sing in unison or harmony, their individual personalities dissolve. It diminishes our intimacy with both of them. Unless you want this effect, don't have them sing together. When they do, like when two men are pledging friendship or two sisters are engaged in identical behavior, as when Olga and Tatiana were singing their duet, there is no form like opera. Beautiful music has no known formula, not that one should stop trying to look for it, but an opera might get every one of these points right and still not be great. I tend to think that if it nails these points, it won't be a yawning bore, but if it fails them, the only thing that'll save it is unforgettable music. Tchaikovsky's music is just too beautiful for anyone to care about its occasional theatrical foibles, and Eugene Onegin does get most of them right in any case. In defense of Tchaikovsky and in a spirit of greater humility, I, I'm feeling the need to justify myself. Some people will be thinking, who the hell am I to be critiquing Tchaikovsky? I don't speak a line of Russian, and whenever I hear this opera, I'm sure this blinds me to its finer qualities. The author of the story is Alexander Pushkin, and there are untranslatable idioms unique to each language that affect only native speakers. I was wondering about this when I first saw Eugene Onegin, with a friend savvy in these matters in an opera house packed with Russians who were levitating and seemed to have none of the doubts we had. I'm more familiar with it now, which solves that mystery, but still... Neither of us knew where to focus when the two men enter in Act 1, and I certainly can't say how it should have been written. We just turned to each other and said things like, This is the composer of Swan Lake, The Nutcracker, those magnificent symphonies and concertos for piano and violin, and countless other pieces that never make us ask these questions. At one point I definitely remember thinking, It took Puccini a bar and a half to tell us who Mimi is. And I was thinking of this moment in Act One. Why does it take Tchaikovsky, who's absolutely one of the greatest orchestrators, has no less a gift than Puccini for writing unforgettable melodies, and certainly understands the drama, so long to tell us Tatiana's in love, which he does brilliantly in the next scene? and that we should love her. The second time I saw it, I was with my dad, who's had Tchaikovsky in his ears since he was very young, and in general the Russian culture and aesthetic runs deep in him. He seemed to be as moved as the Russians themselves. The strengths of Eugene Onegin's music have grown on me so much that I, I now wonder how it could have seemed as underwhelming as it did the first time. Maybe it was a little too hot in the auditorium. Anyway... It's a constant reminder to me not to give too much to the tyranny of first impressions, especially with something as refined as an opera. But let me bring in another much more authoritative voice to close the point. Thomas Beecham expounds on this exact question in his memoir as one of the lessons he learned making his first opera company. Quote, The most valuable lesson I learned was, while the music which sounded right and effective in the theater had a character or quality possessed by none other, it failed to make the same appeal when heard outside it. To apply the term dramatic and to be content with such a definition would be inadequate and misleading. The fifth and sixth symphonies of Tchaikovsky have a distinctly dramatic quality, 
but of all the Russian composers, he is the least successful in opera. I have to disagree with the baronet here. I think, with the exception of Mussorgsky, Tchaikovsky is the most successful Russian opera composer, but audiences may have responded differently in 1902, which you might be remembering. But the sequel is the best I've ever heard anyone put it. Beecham continues. What is this intangible element in the music itself which must be half the battle already won for any piece that has to dominate the stage? And how many works do we not know, which are admirably constructed and have both capital stories and excellent music, but which fail to hold the public attention, really interested and absorbed? It is not an easy question to answer, but it may be a highly developed inner visual sense in the consciousness of supremely gifted writers for the theater, like Mozart, Verdi, Wagner, and Puccini, that sees, as in an ever-present mirror, the progress of the drama running through every phrase, word, and action, and simultaneously evolves the right sort of music to go along with it. But whatever is its nature, there is no doubt about its existence. End quote. A highly developed inner visual sense that, as in an ever-present mirror, sees the progress of the drama running through every phrase, word, and action, and simultaneously evolves the right sort of music to go along with it. This episode has been one attempt by yours truly to explain this intangible phenomenon, which interests me greatly, and I think can't be understood with the study of opera alone. It shows the complexity of opera and how its peculiar logic is this combination of arts, a subject we'll certainly explore more of. But the evolving of the right sort of music for whatever the situation, if it's going to have an answer, will be found by looking at the behavior of music's elements. Texture at this juncture might be the decisive one. When you have huge numbers of sounds at your command, like with many people, the texture is always a problem to be handled with great care. Okay, long digression over. Sorry about that. Of course, we're not actually at the cafe table. Depending on how much we spent on our ticket, we might be 20 rows back and many levels above. And this presents another difficulty the playwright doesn't have that the opera composer has to constantly find solutions for. How do you make an aside in a noisy atmosphere like this? How does one character whisper audibly while two others are at the top of their lungs? Also, a full orchestra sits between audience and stage. Even if it plays quietly, a whisper is out of the question. Any working opera singer will tell you, on stage, unless your voice is the only thing sounding, there is no such thing as quiet when you have to fill a large room competing with an orchestra. It's all medium, loud, and very loud. And since you can't do it by volume, you have to do it by changing the articulation by contrasting connected and detached sounds. In music, this is simply how a sound begins and ends, whether sharply, smoothly, etc. This is another thing you may have thought when hearing the rising violin line that I promised to get to. Onstage whispers, or asides, are declaimed syllabically beneath more lyrical melodies. Will <laughs> 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 
When you're in a very loud place, like a club, or near an airplane, and can only hear someone if they're shouting right near you, you may not actually hear them, but you pick up enough vowels and resonant sounds to immediately reconstruct what they said. This is why you get it wrong sometimes. The composer has to do something similar. As one singer sings a long note, which is going to sound louder because of its length, if the whispered syllables are short and punched beneath them, you can sing them loudly and the orchestra can play as loud as it needs to. Study any ensemble number in an opera where a line is intended for the audience or at least not for all other characters, and you'll hear the articulation is like this. Exceptions don't easily come to my mind. Also, the short articulation, especially when repetitive, sounds like laughing, which is why the fun being had by the Bohemian roommates at the dramatic makeup ritual is written that way. You'd lose this effect with multiple long melodies. Alas, that's also a feature of Tchaikovsky's quartet. Minus Tatiana, they're singing exactly or near exactly the same articulation. It pays to focus particularly to this element. You do anyway, but it's the thing we do to make babies laugh. Peekaboo is basically an articulation game between your hands, eyes, and voice. It's also a rhythm game. The baby's looking at you and you wait a little or move your hands slowly over your eyes, this is a smooth visual articulation to set up for a contrast, then popping out suddenly, a short articulation. It really is one of the most important and interesting elements. So much of music's character comes directly from it that it's, it's difficult to even categorize them. Articulation is tied to orchestration for this reason. The instrument most likely to assure the effect is chosen. To my knowledge, there are no operatic scenes with beach balls in them, but if we were going to use the orchestra to represent one, its articulation would carry most of it, along with timbre. I'd imitate it by the violin bows making a light bounce on their lowest pitched strings, because the grainy quality of the horsehair of the bow would be close to the sound of sand. The string section can start from silence without a clear beginning and end without a clear beginning, and conjure an expanse of sky and sea. The wind on the beach might be better mimicked by the woodwind instruments, like a solo flute holding a long note with the strings beneath it. The flute itself requires wind and sounds like it more than the other wind instruments. Unsurprisingly, articulation is often the defining characteristic of the best performances. This is also why computerized playback is unmoving. It removes not only the breathing human flexibility and rhythm, but also the shades of articulation. As the whole company piles in, the dramatic interest can make one lose sight of the most obvious element of all that's been evident throughout. Each time Musetta's melody is played, it's louder.
for volume in music is dynamics. Loud and soft are also among the first things we learn as babies. Composers make loud and soft in two ways. Write the notes and direct the players to play them louder or softer, or force it to be louder or softer by adding or subtracting notes, i.e. writing fewer notes. This simple distinction has very important implications because it ties dynamics to orchestration and texture. Most often composers use both, as Puccini does here. Dynamic terms are household names. Loud is marked by a lowercase f for forte and soft by p for piano. Look at any musical score and you'll see these letters throughout. That's what they mean. Two f's is fortissimo, very loud. Two p's is pianissimo, very soft. That's why pianos are called pianoforte, by the way, because you can play soft and loud. I've actually said to my friends, uh, keep that pianissimo, will you? And they've duly rolled their eyes. You don't begin flirting or doing any other subtle act at the top of your lungs. It's obvious how this element can be misused. Or maybe not. Sensitivity for it is not in abundance. Bad composers are always over-elaborating, using too much of the orchestra too much of the time. The bad singer shouts more than sings. The bad pianist is always playing too loudly and over-pedaling. Puccini's moderation really shines here. The orchestra is at full blast, once or twice in each act, if even that many times, and always for a higher purpose, like in this climactic moment in Act Two. Musically, it's the beginning of a coda. Dramatically, it accompanies Musetta and Marcello making up, which, by being so over-the-top, sounds all the more humorous, although in the theater I have to resist tears a bit at this moment because the dramatic resolution coming with the musical one is overwhelming. That's impressive enough, but it's what happens right after it that's so much more interesting. The orchestra suddenly withdraws all its force in the middle of the melody, right at the point where it has that pair of curved phrases we talked about when discussing direction. The change of atmosphere from sarcasm and false eroticism just seconds before to the most peaceful, starry Paris night sky romantic continuation without a change in the tune is breathtaking.
it goes by so quickly you can listen right past it. And it's often overshadowed by stage business. That murmuring touch of orchestration in the high violins makes it sound like a chaste love melody. The dynamics vanish more than change, just at the moment when the charade is dropped and a relationship resumed. A number of concurrent ideas are sensible all at once throughout. You can follow either of them and feel perfectly in the situation. There's not only no conflict between music and stage, you almost lose awareness of a separation between story and music. You can hear that these elements act like chisels into the sound space and carve a sound picture, like the early radio theater of the mind. Musetta and Marcello are the tempestuous couple, Rodolfo and Mimi the quieter. The quartet in the next act combines both of them while maintaining this personality difference. You might now find it stimulating figuring out how Puccini managed to do that and how it is that you can follow all four singers. The first singer as an orchestra learning this opera had the benefit of Puccini standing by giving advice and at least had one of the librettists directing the stage. The creators themselves are involved in premieres, which makes them interesting. Oh, a librettist, in case you're just hearing the word, is the person who writes the lyrics in an opera. There were two librettists, Luigi Illica, who was responsible for the plot, and Giuseppe Giacosa, who was to put the plot into verse. Then it was passed to Puccini to write the music, who would often ask for changes. The whole project was overseen by the publisher, an intelligent man named Giulio Ricordi. And they had none other than Arturo Toscanini at the piano and in the orchestra pit conducting, who, by the way, is conducting the performance you've been hearing, which was recorded on the 50th anniversary of the world premiere in 1946. Toscanini's memory for every word, dot, and stroke of the score was legendary. For me, this performance carries something of the 19th century ideal in it, and it's the La Boheme that's retained its freshness with every hearing. It's likely the closest we're ever going to come to the atmosphere of the 1896 premiere. I still think I hear Puccini in it more than a performance. There's a revelatory moment in the lead-up to the premiere. It's one of these moments that's like a fissure in reality and shines a rarely glimpsed light, and it bears on music as the narrator of the drama. The late Julian Budden tells it in his book Puccini, His Life and Work. Quote, Shortly before the premiere, Illica, who would act as stage producer, wrote to record it with an objection that had just occurred to him. In Act One, the Bohemians had been complaining of the bitter cold in their garret, yet there they were, out in the open, in Act Two, without even their overcoats. Ricordi dismissed this as of no consequence, nor has it ever worried an audience, simply because Puccini's music generates so much heat as to make us unaware of it. End quote. Illica hadn't heard the music yet, or hadn't absorbed it properly because of the work he was doing in rehearsal. Once you hear the music, the associations block any hint of a freezing winter in Paris, even though it's right in front of you. After all, even being cold is relative to how much attention you're paying to it, right? It's a perfectly sensible objection before you've heard the music. Even though he adapted the plot, and it's Christmas Eve in the story, and the mood is voluptuousness and merrymaking and all these warm thoughts, he wasn't the first person to notice the effect of the scene. 
The guy who writes the plot wants it to make sense, and there's nothing more natural for the lyricist to think, okay, well, several verses, the same melody is going to repeat each verse, tell the story, make sure everything's covered. In discussion writing the libretto, Puccini would often ask them to remove bits of story or dialogue that seemed essential to them, and quarrels ensued. But as Puccini demonstrates, the same melody is not the same on repetition. It's like a metal undergoing chemical refining, or being alloyed. Its shape might be the same, but it's not the same piece of metal from one stage to the next, and every proportion of alloy serves a different purpose and tells a story of its own. I deliberately haven't told you the story and most of the lyrics you've heard in this scene, except a couple of lines. If you see it, you'll need even fewer. In fact, minus some crucial lines, you won't need any words. After working with Puccini on a few operas, Illica repeated the dictum of an earlier librettist, quote, Verses in opera are for the convenience of the deaf, end quote. Oh yes, there's one last element. What harmony is the orchestra playing when Musetta begins to sing? Any guess? I'll tell you. E major. Does this illuminate anything in the scene? Not by itself, and this reveals something. Unlike the other elements, I'd have to give you some instruction in harmony, and until your ears got used to that, to the dozen or so chords that make up the parts of musical speech, discussing it would add nothing to the sound picture. I can't play you a few seconds and ask, did you hear the subdominant harmony when Musetta sang X? without alienating everyone but professionals. And if they're honest, they'll admit it doesn't illuminate much for them either. You'd have to also attach a nomenclature to each harmony, like tonic, mediant, major, minor, and subdominant. Because it requires this little training, harmony has developed a Wizard of Oz-like reputation to the neglect of the other elements. It's believed to be the sophisticated part of music. I'm sure you've noticed this, that wherever music gets at all technical, the term harmony shows up, sometimes interchangeably with music theory. The word key also shows up. In fact, there's a positive obsession with keys and harmony in the academy. A book on the use of dynamics and articulation would be much more useful to performer and composer alike, whereas a book on harmony is largely useless to both. Harmony is not a complicated element. It just begins in this area of training. The other seven are where all the sophistication is to be found. Yet profusions of textbooks are published on harmony on the misapprehension that the secret code of genius is to be cracked in it. And I've never even heard of one theorized for dynamics. There are deep reasons for all this, and here is not the place to dive into them. But again, I digress. It's going to take more time identifying harmony by ear than one episode. And for now, I don't want to keep you any longer than my tour guide kept me. So I'm going to leave it out and return to it and its issues in its own context. Except to say that harmony is very aptly named. It does indeed add color, beauty, and depth to these musical images. To recap, then, the composer's language is the right melodic direction played by the number and kind of instrument for the right texture and sound with the right articulation, in the right register, yes, arranged in the right harmony, at the right volume, and all in the right rhythm.
These are not the aesthetic itself, but they are what each style is made of. For convenience, we've called them Baroque, Romantic, etc., but they were all continually morphing year by year like clouds, by the manipulation of these elements. The sound image might be part of everyday life, like here in La Boheme, or more abstract, like the symphonies of Mozart or the keyboard fugues of Bach. But these elements are the ones that composers are making decisions about. And indeed, what makes them elements is that they're the things a composer must make decisions about. And with that, I can switch to a better analogy. These are the gods of music that shadow the instincts. Each makes a demand, and when a composer doesn't propitiate them, they avenge themselves on their music by robbing it of some vital force or association in the listener's mind. It's not that one is actively thinking about these things while listening, any more than you think about your grammar when listening to a lecture. The pleasure comes from pausing to notice how beautifully and skillfully something was said. Without having the tools to notice why, there's no listening with benefit. If you felt some of the elements were not easy to follow, just go with the ones you can. They will come up again. In the meantime, enjoy listening, and when something attracts your attention, think on these points and see if the composer speaks more directly. That will be plenty good enough an ear for music. Why not first figure out where it needs to be good? Thanks again. I'm Sina Kiai. This is Thinking in Music.